The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So I've recently been watching one of my all-time favorite television shows again because there's just too much choice on Netflix, so it's good to stay with something safe. It's uh, the long-running sci-fi series Stargate SG-1. It's about a team of um, military um, and uh, scientists that explore the galaxy through this device called a Stargate, which opens up a wormhole so they can do near-instantaneous travel to other planets. In one such episode, they arrive at a planet and they find this room. And on the walls, there are varying alien languages, none of which they can read, but a device in the center. And when they activate the device, it shows up symbols, and they start to recognize them. They're the symbols for the atomic structure of things like hydrogen, sodium, sulfur, beryllium. And what they realize is in this room, with all these different languages on the walls that none of them can read, at the center, for what they are assuming is sort of an alien United Nations, they've determined a common language by reducing their means of communication down to the most basic elements. Finding what they held in common and communicating through that. So I want you to hold on to this idea of breaking down our understanding of the world, uh, culture, language, everything down to its most unique, basic, common elements. We're going to spend this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I'd invite you to turn with me there. And Paul is writing to a church in crisis, as most of Paul's letters are. He's writing to a church that is absolutely racked with division. If we go through the chapters, we find that they are divided on which leader they follow, who they receive the gospel from, dividing into camps based on who preached to them first. They're divided on how to deal with sexual immorality in the church, how to deal with varying social status, what to do with food sacrificed to idols, their personal rights and their freedoms in the gospel, whether or not men or women should wear head coverings during worship, How do they talk about spiritual giftings? How do they use them in worship? How do you even do proper worship to this new God? And Paul steps into this, into this culture and society, trying to communicate with them as best he can, people who come from all different walks of life, trying to meet them in a common ground, to speak a universal language that can bridge the gap between all the different ideas and variations that exist in the community. And for Paul, it is all about the resurrection of Christ. This is the common place to begin, the beginning of faith, the essence of the good news. Paul starts his letter with this, talking about the cross. If you turn with me back to the beginning, 1 Corinthians 1.18, He takes a very, very long time to lay out why the cross is important. While it may be seen as foolishness to the people of Corinthian, of the the Corinthian church, 
because the cross represents a criminal's death, punishment, lowering of status. In a city where having high status was everything, where having authority and power was everything, the cross represented an upside-down narrative. But it's what they all have in common. And so it's where Paul starts his letter reminding them that they are there not because the church necessarily makes the most sense. It's the place for social and political and economic advantage, but it's a place where they encountered a crucified and resurrected Lord who began to transform their spirit. And then he moves through another 14 chapters, working through the different ethics of the church, and then once again lands on the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, for which you received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For Paul, all this conversation of ethics, of how to live well within the church, it hangs on what you understand happened at the cross and the resurrection. And so he articulates sort of an early creed in verses 3, th 3 through 7 of what they should believe. It says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. There may be the temptation to over-spiritualize the cross, to make it all about our souls. But Paul reminds the people of Corinth that Christ died and was buried. His body was put in a tomb by his friends. The physical was very much put to death, just as his physical body was resurrected. Because a lot of the problems in the Corinthian church could perhaps draw from this idea that they would over-spiritualize their salvation, forgetting about the physical, leading to these concerns of sexual immorality, being overly concerned with food sacrificed to idols, thinking that they were no longer bound by the conventions of government because they had transcended beyond that. But Paul reminds them that it is instrumental for their salvation that Christ, a physical being, died and was buried. It's where we center our hope in the resurrection, in the bodily resurrection of Christ. It's why Christmas is so important. Christ took on flesh. The Word became flesh and dwells among us. What we do here and now certainly matters. It is not just about the future, which is why Paul takes so much time to outline how the Church of Corinth should act today. And so he continues. Since he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, and after he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, because what Paul is trying to appeal to is now a passing down of tradition, of grounding their personal experience of Christ with the trustworthiness of the biblical witness. For by referencing to scriptures, he says, this has always been part of God's plan. This is not something new. This is not something surprising. This is something we have expected. Perhaps not in this exact way, but we knew that God would act. 
Jesus was always part of God's plan and evidence that God fulfills all the promises of Scripture. Grounded in Scripture, he extends it out to a community witness, to Peter, the Twelve, more than 500 who saw him. This is not just Paul's invention, Paul's fabrication, Paul's understanding of Scripture. It is something that a community has invested themselves into. Because back then, it would not have been popular to be a follower of Jesus. It was incredibly dangerous. The Jews hated the idea that Jesus was the Messiah because it betrayed everything that they had thought they understood about the coming of the Messiah. And for the Christians as well, they, un- they enjoyed a certain level of protection by just being associated with Judaism from the Romans because Judaism was a recognized religion of the day. And if they were too distant from the Jews, if the Jews had made enough of a deal that they were not the same, then they would have been open for persecution, something that the church endured a lot of in its first 300 years. So Paul is appealing to this community, this community of committed Christians that witnessed the resurrection and passed it down, not because it was convenient or because it gave them something really good and powerful in life, because this was a dangerous message. It was good news, but it was dangerous. And Paul knows just how dangerous it was, because he persecuted the church. Paul moves on from the trustworthiness of Scripture to this community witness to his own then personal experience. He reflects on how he persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, he then says, I am what I am, and his grace with me is not without effect. Paul points to his own life and says, this is, this is an example of the transformative power of the cross and the resurrection. I, who was once the church's greatest enemy, has been found by God and his grace and turned apostle and preacher. Paul uses the image of a stillborn. He says, for I am the least of these. And I'm realizing that my NIV translation doesn't use the word stillborn, and I forgot to write down the Greek. I'm sorry. (laughs) But uh, within it, Paul uses um, the image of a stillborn for for being the least, because it is a dreadful situation. Anyone that has experienced it personally or known someone that has experienced a stillborn birth knows that it is immense pain, physical, emotional, spiritual sorrow. And for the writers of the scriptures and in the ancient world, they used this as an image of an absolutely dreadful and destitute situation, something that no one should ever wish on themselves or anyone else. Paul uses it to articulate how low he was before God found him, before Jesus Christ transformed him and empowered him to carry the gospel to the nations. And Paul reminds the church of Corinth that his good works are only possible by the grace of Jesus Christ in him. Yet, not I, but the grace of God. Because this is what we preach, he says. We preach the cross. Because for the church in Corinth, he is concerned about their factionalism, about their division, 
that they're going to pick the leaders that say the nicest things or agree with what they already believe. That they're going to forget who saved them, who went to the cross for them. Because it certainly wasn't Paul, it certainly wasn't Peter, it certainly wasn't Apollos. None of their leaders went to the cross for them. None of their re- leaders died and were resurrected and ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. Because it is through the cross that Paul teaches. It is through the cross that Paul wants the church of Corinth to live. Which is why he opens and closes this letter. Paul doesn't matter. The city they live in, it doesn't matter. The culture, everything that they know before Christ is tangential compared to the power and transformative nature of the cross. It's kind of important. It's kind of an important thing to figure out, to dwell on, to reflect on, to orient our lives around. Because while we may not struggle with the same issues that the church in Corinth struggled, we certainly have cause for division among ourselves. These distractions, we might say, these issues that start to take up more and more of our time and our energy as we debate them can lead to division if we are not grounding our conversation in the, in the gospel, in the good news of the cross and resurrection. It is, of course, still important to wrestle with these ethical questions because the cross is about being embodied. It's about being together. It really does matter what we do with our bodies, how we interact with each other, how we live into our communities and cities and worlds. We cannot forget that. Because there is an unbreakable link between our beliefs and our practice. Too much focus on belief can lead to an isolation. That focus on that orthodoxy, that right belief. If we are so focused on getting it right, we can push out those that have a slightly different idea than us for fear that it might compromise our faith if anyone believes one bit different than us. If they differ, then they cannot be Christian. If they differ on matters of sexuality, women in office, children at the Lord's table, on end times, on creation stories, six-day versus evolution, we might fear that they would compromise our faith and that they are actually not really Christian if they don't hold to everything that we do. We might push the dissenters out and break into smaller and smaller groups until quite realistically, we would be just on our own. Because who sees the world exactly like each and every single one of us? But in contrast, if we focus too much on practice, on that orthopraxy, that right practice, we might lack a theological center, a doctrinal grounding. Because if we focus too much on what we are doing and being governed by our own personal ethic, We might do it without the context of a core belief. We might forget the cross and just try and do what we feel is right. Our beliefs may become over-contextualized, being transformed by the world rather than transformed by the gospel. Instead of letting the cross shape our culture, we allow the culture to shape ourselves, forgetting why we care for the poor and sick, why we care for God's earth, 
And there are many things that we in this community might divide about from our community and within. Is it really important to you that you're a member at First Hamilton CRC, that that's the most important marker of who you are, that you belong to this community? It's certainly a community I'm proud to belong to, but I'm not going to base all of my ethical and belief decisions based on this community. Perhaps you might step out a little bit bigger and say it's about being reformed. It's about holding to the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort. That's not the be-all, end-all. There's certainly tools to help us better understand Scripture and how to live, but they are by no means a replacement for it. Perhaps you guys are really proud to have Hayden as your pastor. I think you should be. But we're not going to go around calling ourselves Haydenites. As much as I'm sure he would be flattered by that. We don't want to divide ourselves from other Christians just because they don't think that every word that comes out of Pastor Hayden, or I'll throw my name in there uh, as well as being, you know, the true representation of the gospel. Because it's not about us as leaders. It's not about us as preachers. Paul reminds us of that, that it, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ crucified. Perhaps we might divide about politics. We've got an election in this province coming up. We might formulate our opinions and our worldviews based on which political party we feel best suits our needs and our interests. I'm sure every political party and then some are represented in this congregation alone. But if we orient ourselves based on politics rather than the cross, making who we vote for the most important defining trait of who we spend time with, we divide. Continuing that line of thought, how we think about pandemics, the mandates, vaccines, the current protest going on in Ottawa. If we make these central to our identity as Christians and beliefs, Again, we divide. In her prayer, Mary Jane prayed for Synod this year, our denominational meeting, and the report on human sexuality. That certainly has the ability to divide us, to separate us based on this one belief. And these are all important things to consider, all important things that we should have opinions on, that we should think about. I'm not asking us to ignore the broad spectrum of ethics and beliefs that we have to encounter as Christians, but rather to reduce it down to what is at the center each and every time we engage in these discussions. Rather than operating under fear of the other and their beliefs, distrust or suspicion that they're going to try and change our ways. If we are too bound to tradition, unwilling to change, because change is frightening, or perhaps indifferent, saying that it doesn't matter at all in flowing with the wind, ignoring what is really going on around us because we don't believe it matters. It all matters because the cross matters, because Christ's resurrection matters. Paul would not take these ta this time to write all these letters to outline all these ethical and belief concerns if they didn't matter, but he presses them through the lens of the cross. Jesus was died, buried, and rose again. And we are approaching the season of Lent. We are coming together 
to prepare our hearts and our minds and our bodies for very intense reflection on what Jesus went through as he went to the cross and died for each and every one of us. In anticipation of the celebration of the resurrection. Because this is the essence of the good news. The essence of the gospel is that Christ died so we did not have to. Christ lives so that we can live, and Christ has resurrected so that we will rise again. And the resurrection matters because it has nothing to do with what we do. It has very little, if anything, to do with what we believe, with the exception that we believe in the resurrection. It does not matter what we do, what theologies we write, because if we are not trying to make sense of God in light of the resurrection or act in a way that points to our risen Savior, then as Paul writes, our belief is in vain. If we don't believe in the resurrection, then what are we doing here? Why come here at all? Why get together? We are here because we believe. And some days it may be hard and we may wrestle with what it means for Christ to be resurrected. We may wrestle with the gravity of this miracle, but this wrestling does not undermine its importance. In fact, we should continue to wrestle with it because it is just so important. Because the resurrection points to the ways that we are changed by grace in the way that we can live in disagreement. Differing opinions about belief and practice points to the resurrection of Christ. Because where else do you find such a diverse group of men and women than the church? Or better yet, should you find a more diverse place for men and women to gather together than the church? I would say no. Because by the grace of God, by our amazing diversity, he has reduced our means of communication down to one simple thing. The resurrection. So when these difficult matters start, let us start with what we have in common. When we are unsure exactly how to articulate what we believe or what we should believe, when we're unsure of what direction we are supposed to take as a church in matters of belief and practice, start with what is common to all of us. And this is not just common to us here at First Hamilton, the Reformed Church, but to all Protestants, Roman Catholics, our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church, all those that proclaim that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again because we all share in the same ministry of grace. It's ministry of grace oriented around mercy and compassion. That is the lens that the resurrection asks us to push all of our thoughts through. Because in each of the matters that Paul addresses in the church in Corinth, he takes the side of the lower, of the oppressed, of those that are trodden down, because the gospel lifts them up, just as it lifted Paul up, as it's lifted me, and you up. So it is the only the ministry of Christ that matters, because only he has that power to redeem each and every one of us. And we have the great privilege of being invited to approach and participate 
and this ministry, crucifixion and resurrection. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that despite all of our division, all of our infighting, all of our outfighting, that you've sent your son Jesus for our sake, knowing that we do not have the ability to bring about the redemption of all things on our own. We thank you for doing that work on our behalf. And we thank you for inviting us to participate in that. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we put our own understandings of beliefs and our own understandings of the practices that come out of those beliefs ahead of the truth of the resurrection. Help us pass all of our life, everything we do, because it all matters so much to you through this ministry of grace, mercy, and compassion. Knowing that it is only by your work, through the Holy Spirit in us, that we can approach you with a measure of grace. Amen.